Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Salah Bashir. Salah is an entrepreneur, an activist, a fundraising machine, and perhaps the city's most stylish philanthropist. He loves to wear pearls, but can also throw a really tight spiral with a football. In the larger-than-life world of Salah Bashir, nothing is static. When he sees something that needs to change, he makes it happen. Salah is notably a member of both the Order of Ontario and the Order of Canada for his leadership as an entrepreneur and for his commitment to the arts and social justice. There aren't many celebrities that Salah has not met, and many that he calls friends. His new memoir is called First to Leave the Party, My Life with Ordinary People, dot, 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 who happen to be famous, a book made up of 54 very punchy chapters about bold-faith names from Elizabeth Taylor to Princess Margaret to Princess Diana to Muhammad Ali to Liberace to Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau to Andy Warhol. The book's focus is not on the gossip, but rather on the lessons he has taken away from his intimate moments with these well-known celebrities. Welcome, Salah, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm in Paris, Ontario, not far from Toronto. And we're here for a couple of weeks and, uh, yeah, enjoying country life. Ted Reader has a great line. Do you know what you call people from Paris? Parasite. <laughs> oh, he's, he's already told you a good line. Listen, Salah, you lay your head in many places these days. I understand you're a man of many home bases. Not that many. I'm trying to, to you know, just have one pillow in one place. It's not, you know, it's good to wake up and knowing where the bathroom is. You know, I actually have a, a problem staying at other people's homes, which I do say in the book, because you, you can't be as free as a hotel and stuff like that. And uh, whatever, whoever told you those other things, <laughs> I lay my head all over the place. I'm not seeing them anymore. I, all right. Par- Paris is the uh, the place you're at now. And do you also maintain a residence in Toronto? Yes. Excellent. And a home in Lebanon. Oh, well, there you go. Now, your book is called First to Leave the Party, but this is apparently a changed behavior because your original MO was actually to be the last to leave the party. Why this change in your party attending strategy? Well, you know, I, I, survival for one, I think, you know, the, the people at the end of the night are usually getting drunk and more obnoxious and, they, you know, they want to apologize a couple of days later. And, uh, and you know, I'm diabetic as well if, if I was to have more to drink and any other stuff. And you'd rather leave when people still want more of you. And, you, you know, anything you, you haven't said by a certain time, you can get together another time and talk about it. I love that. Leave them wanting more. Want, always. Now, as I mentioned, your book is made up of 54 chapters or celebrity interactions. And trust me, people, when I say that these are actual celebrities and not the influencers and social media stars that pass off as celebrities these days, of course, You'll need to buy the book or head to your local library to enjoy all 54 of Salah's interactions. But I am going to ask you about a few of them. Now, Paul Newman and his wife, Joanne Woodward, were in Toronto as Joanne was in a play at the Royal Alex. And you casually mentioned, hey, I've got an apartment just across the street over on Simcoe Street. If you ever want to get away from the prying eyes and the limelight, you're welcome to drop by and chill out. And they did. You know, yeah. And it's something I say to a lot of people, like I've you know, when I said I have a home in Lebanon, I would have said to you, hey, Andrew, if you're ever in the region and want to go, which happened with different people, and I've dropped that, and they did. They showed up, and she was doing Sweet Bird of Youth, which Paul Newman had done as a film, and uh, uh, 
they came and we became friends and they said they want to go see Niagara Falls. Who comes to Toronto doesn't say they want to go see Niagara Falls? And of course, I have a car and like not drive to Niagara Falls, right? Like, why well, hire a car and driver? And you know, you get a chance to spend a day with Paul Newman and Joanna Woodridge, take it, you know. That, that certainly is the quintessential the tourist stop. Yeah. Nasala, is it urban myth that you were the one that suggested Paul Newman use his face as the logo for his line of Newman's own salad dressings? I'll take credit for no, not me. <laughs> I wish. No, it was his the neighbor, E.A.E. E. Hodge, I believe, who did a biography of Doris Day as well, who's in the book, right? And so, yeah, I mean, just saying, it, you know, there, there is a recognition that of their celebrity when someone says, like, you know, people... I'm a nice guy as long as I don't, you know, become a screw up somewhere. But and I want to do that. And the great thing is that hundreds of millions of dollars have been raised for different charities all over the world and Canada as well. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's incredible what they've done with that food yeah, brand. It's incredible. Now here's a headline that absolutely demands more details. In 1985, you attended the very first WrestleMania at Madison Square Garden in New York City, where you interviewed not only the greatest, Muhammad Ali, but also Liberace. Well, you know what? Liberace, Paul Newman, and Toronto do have a connection. Liberace, Diane Dupuis, and Famous People players toured with Liberace for about 10 years. And it was Liberace, and Liberace had suggested... Um, that Paul Newman and come and see famous people players when they were on Broadway together. And that's how Paul Newman started giving money to famous people players. But I mean, the thing about Liberace is like, you know, there's a whole story there about, I mean, whose fault is it that we didn't know he was gay, even though he denied it so many times. And it was a lovely story. I mean, he had his hand on my knee for quite a bit of the lunch, but Hey, I was a good-looking guy then. I would have had my hand on my knee, too. But, you know. And are you a wrestling fan, Salad? Did you enjoy WrestleMania? I went. It was a free trip to New York. <laughs> it was like, it was a spectacle to it. And they were an advertiser. And you do stuff for your advertisers, right? I mean, like, um, I can't say I've been to another one. But it was one of those things you just got to do once. Yeah, exactly. You get it with Muhammad Ali and Billy Martin, I think, was the timekeeper as well. And uh, it, it, yeah, it was great theatrics, you know, a big circus. It sounds like the start of a great joke. Billy Martin, Muhammad Ali, and Liberace walk into a bar. That's right. <laughs> now, Elizabeth Taylor once took a taxi to your home to take you up on your invitation for her to try on your collection of antique jewelry. Somehow the doorman at your building didn't even recognize Elizabeth Taylor, and she swept in incognito. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you put big sunglasses over those beautiful eyes and put a scarf on, it, it could be anybody, really. And, it, I mean, the whole, the whole, all the stories of the books are people that, I mean, we sometimes fawn over celebrities, and, you know, they're all doing a job, they're like we're doing right now, and uh, they, you know, crave privacy and create someone, you know, uh, not asking them what was Richard Burton really like or any of, of those things. It, it, it was just an outing and I was careful not to infringe on, it was like having a friend over, like, you know, I try my jewelry here. There's, you know, here's some, let, let's do that. And uh, 
but she never returned the invitation to try on her jewelry. I guess I that part. <laughs> but she was very kind, very sweet. And again, it's another person who's done amazing things with their celebrity. I mean, she raised hundreds of millions of dollars for an AIDS charity when most people wouldn't talk about AIDS or have anything to do with people with AIDS. And and the whole question as well, she's had some of the most famous gay people as her co-stars. And there used to be a line in old Hollywood, if you want to prove someone wasn't gay, you put them in a show with Elizabeth Taylor and they made love to Elizabeth Taylor. So whole list of, from James Dean to Rock Hudson to Lawrence Harvey to Montgomery Cliff, Sal Mignot. And she relished in that. Now, Marlon Brando was in town in Toronto to film the movie The Freshman, but his co-star Matthew Broderick was actually the hot celebrity of the moment. Salah, how did you develop a bond with Marlon Brando? Well, I mean, if you could anywhere, you can knive and try whatever you can to. I mean, it was Brando, right? They were filming The Freshman in Rexdale on Rexdale Boulevard. I grew up in Rexdale, and uh, my parents lived till my dad died behind Rexdale Plaza. So it was like, and I had worked that whole strip. And so when the opportunity came up to go interview Matthew Broderick, he had just had Ferris Bueller's day off a few years earlier. And then there was Brando sitting there and I just sat down and started talking. And one thing led to another and and we stayed in touch and it, it was a, a great, you know, positive friendship. And sometimes, you know, if you're going through a lot of times questioning yourself, whether your weight or your sexuality or, you know, as an immigrant fitting in, sometimes just taking somebody like an Elizabeth Taylor or Marlon Brando or Ella Fitzgerald or someone to, to say to, you know, hey, you're great or you're wonderful and I want to hang out with you. I don't want to go to this party or I just want to do this. And it's very empowering, very, um, yeah, positive, positive thinking on it. And that brings me to uh, urban myth number two that I'm going to bounce off you. You are a former hockey player, and you kind of look like Marlon Brando. Salah Bashir, you are the body double doing Marlon Brando's ice skating scenes in The Freshman. True or false? Did you see the picture? Did you see that picture at all? There's a, So he, he doesn't know how to skate, and we look so much alike. And when I put it on social media, all my friends now thought it was still me. And back then, everybody thought it was me. And it was the same arena I had played hockey in, Western Arena, in Etobicoke. And it wasn't me. It was him with somebody. And, um, yeah, it, it, but everybody thought it was me. Well, that was close. <laughs> The late comedian and talk show host Joan Rivers was not only high maintenance, but she lived up to her billing as the queen of mean with you. I was friends with Joan, and Joan was on a treadmill. I mean, there were some funny, very funny things that she said and did, and we had a gala for the 519 Community Center in Toronto, and it was our second one. And she still told, I think she was in a rush. She had the Home Shopping Network, she had a bunch of stuff, and then Jackie Richardson had opened for her. And she took her off. She asked her to get that bitch off stage because she was a standing ovation after one song. And, you know, and some of her comedy hurt a lot of people, whether, you know, of course we all laugh. And, uh, but I know personally it hurt body weight and body image. And we've all gained weight and we've all had struggles with different body images. And, you know, um, I think the chapter is pretty loving overall, but it, it it was kind of a little bit of a, yeah, that she did the same material over and over and wasn't cognizant of the audience she was performing to and that her, her comedy did hurt people. 
you, you got to change with the times. Yeah. Finally, one more to ask you about. Andy Warhol. Now, Salah, you used to wrap Christmas gifts in his sketches before he was well-known, and the only Warhol sketch that survived is now worth over $100,000. I have to ask, why couldn't you just use newspapers or regular gift wrap? Well, no, I didn't wrap that. And so I would put them in poster tubes that we got from the video industry. You know, those poster tubes for movie posters. So he gave me a series of 10 flower paintings. And I so I would go to a wedding or to an event. And I would the old, I don't know if you remember Grandin Toy. You used to buy the uh, little bowls from Grandin Toy. You'd have this big poster tube and you'd roll it up and put it in. And it would be like, here's everybody with these gold wrapped or Tiffany wrapped presents and here's Bashir walking in with a poster tube and but it was a Warhol <laughs> so most people thought it was a poster but it was an actual print a limited edition print my mom kept it my mom was the only one that kept one because she kept everything I gave her that was great well I'm glad your mom kept that one yeah your mom would have <laughs> absolutely absolutely and you're bringing me back grand and toy I love that reference <laughs> Before we go further, let's please go all the way back, get the Salah Bashir story. Born in Lebanon, you came to Canada in 1965 at the age of 10, playing football and hockey and lacrosse, as you know, growing up in Rexdale, learning English from watching Batman on television. What was your immigrant experience? It's still going on. It's still, I mean, it never changes. I, I think sometimes if you're different religion, if we're an atheist or whatever, sometimes you still want to fit in with certain traditions and stuff and different sexual orientation. And coming in in 1965, you watch shows. I mean, the biggest show was Bewitched. And I don't know if you've seen the old Bewitched. I and mean, that was so gay. And for a 10-year-old to watch, you know, there's Andorra dressed like a, a drag queen. And uh, Paul Lind was Uncle Arthur. And Samantha had a secret weapon, a secret life as a secret life as a witch, and then she had a wild side as Serena, and and that was my English teacher, uh, my ESL teacher in grade four and five, who said just watch television to pick up all the expressions because everything I'm going to teach you is going to be boring. So that was the best instructions ever: just give us shows to watch, and we would discuss them the next day. And, you know, Bonanza and Bewitched. All the bees, apparently, bees that were on in the 1960s. Well, in addition to bees, there were Ds. Uh, while you were playing lacrosse, your coach asked you who your favorite celebrity was, and you answered the very feminine actress, Doris Day. Now, when your lacrosse coach drove you home from practice later, he admonished you. You can't say that out loud. What did he mean by that? And what was particularly ironic about that coach telling you this? Doris Day, the Doris Day show was on, I mean, Doris Day, the all-American, everything. Blonde, always got the man, and was a gay man, too, in Rock Hudson, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, and her films, you know, Norma Jewison directed. I, I thought it, 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 I mean, he was worried that I was coming out at an early age, that I was, was going to set aside it, even though I, I knew that I was gay since I was eight. But, um, and um, I saw him later with his, boyfriend or partner at an AIDS benefit. Uh, he was a big muscular coach in there. But I was a star goalie, so I, hey, we had one, two years in a row, and yeah, it was... Our chant going in was Tonka Toys, our perfect gift for girls and boys. 
And we had to do that before every game. And and then Doris, when I finally met Doris, Doris dated something that most people don't give her credit for. Um, one, she was a top box office star like for four years in a row, which only Shirley Temple had done that before. And she was a top billboard star nine out of 10 years, which is amazing stats kind of. But in 1985, before Reagan was even mentioned the word AIDS, she hugged Rock Hudson, knowing he had AIDS when he came. And then when he died on the Christian Broadcast Network, she said he's in heaven now. And so incredible, incredible woman and life and, and lived by her own rules, really. She did what she had to do in Hollywood, then took off to Carmel and, you know, decided animals were far better, you know, than which Many people do believe animals are better yeah. than people. Now, Sala, you channeled your energy into activism early at the age of 15, becoming a one-teen boycott machine outside your local Dominion store, agitating for farm workers' rights during the California Grape Boycott, you were supporting the labor and civil rights activist Cesar Chavez. Who was Cesar Chavez, and how did your eventual interaction with him have such a big impact on you going forward? Cesar Chavez is a hero. He's a, you know, a worldwide hero. Um I don't know how I got involved in the first place with the boycott against grapes. I, I mean, grapes are one of my favorite fruits. And so it was like, and the Dominion store was in Rexdale Plaza where all my neighbors and everybody worked in there. So to stand there with a picket sign and um, a little box to put money in and everybody working in the store is amazing. It was like a sense of community would be bringing me out little treats while I'm longer I stand there. But not knowing that the more treats they give me, the longer I stand there. But when he came to Toronto, um, there was a chance to meet him and we were all, you know, presented him what we had raised that day. And I had only raised a hundred dollars and my dad gave me $50 more, or some kind of a combination. But his lessons about fundraising were amazing. He told me where the money went. And first thing he said, it's $150 more than we had this morning. And then he told me, which would be around $700 in today's terms, but then he told me specifically how that money would be used. And it would be benefit like two families for a week or longer. And just telling people where the money they donate, what effect it has, and is is a great lesson in fundraising. And that's always stayed with me since then. And I was honored to get the Association of Fundraising Professionals Lifetime Achievement like Worldwide Achievement Award in San Francisco, which is not very far from the Salinas Valley where he had organized. And I'd met Malala backstage then, but I couldn't help but keep thinking of Chavez and everything he had done there and uh, to stay. And of course, you are known as a great philanthropist, no less than our national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, dubbed you Gala Sala in reference to the literally hundreds of fundraising luncheons and galas you've hosted and the millions upon millions of dollars you have raised for a variety of causes. Are you indeed the host with the most? I'm the host with the least because I I get people out on time. I don't have speeches. I don't allow speeches because if you've paid that kind of money to come in, you know why you're there. I don't need to see anything more. It's like you're on time. Um, we have food down on the table. So if you're diabetic or you haven't eaten, and it runs and it's just, we don't spend a ton of money on hundreds of flowers and people's gowns and everything else. No one, everybody's going to remember the entertainment. And so over the years, we've had people from Eartha Kitt to Audra McDonald was the last one. Uh, 
Patty Lupon, Joan Rivers, Diane Carroll. You're going to remember a great night, and then we're going to get you out. So, you know, they start at on time and usually end by 10. And if you want to go for drinks afterward, the city's full of great bars and hotels and restaurants, but I'm going home to walk my dog. First to leave, <laughs> as the book says. I can't think of anyone better to ask this question to than you. How do you ask for what you want, especially when what you want is their money? You don't ask, which is what sometimes people have. It's an oversell. Sometimes you tell people, and it's a subtle way. Sometimes you ask specifically if people have given you more, and you tell you tell people what about your event and what's going on. And sometimes you have lunch with people and friends or colleagues, and it's a subtle thing. This is what I'm working on. That's what I'm working on. And if if you're moved, or you, people will tell you, I want to help. Like if they know that and you have a track record of doing certain things, even in business, I'm sometimes I would take clients out and, you know, simple as like it's the holidays and we're like $500,000 short to make our budget. And they'll say, oh, let me find something I can find. But I think if people trust you and you have a great relationship with them and they know that you're raising funds for necessary things and that then that's that's important. But you also do have to do your research as well. So if certain people don't support certain events, if, if whole foundation is about ch- children's education, you should tailor your ask to fit into what you know they're willing to fund, that we're willing to support. And sometimes it's uh, not being lazy about it, doing your homework, and then you can ask from a position of knowledge. You got to know your audience. Yeah. Is it safe to say that the underlying big thing is that you really strongly believe everything is about relationships? I think developing a relationship, developing a friendship, remembering people when they have issues or different things or helping where you can. If somebody has a health issue and you've raised a lot of money for a certain hospital and you can help them go there or if somebody is in need of getting anything, I do think that People want to work with friends and people have been nice to them and not just once a year remembering them and say, hey, I need money for this charity I'm working on. And it's it's like life, like everything else. And I, I think even the whole book is just exactly about that. Like I didn't go to Paul Newman asking for money or didn't go to, and a lot of people who have appeared at our galas didn't, char- didn't want to charge, but we do pay entertainment and I make sure that we have people to pay their fees, but it is about that relationship, yeah. Well, another side of you is your business side. You're a very successful businessman. You made both your name and your art collecting budget as an entertainment entrepreneur. Your brother owned a video store. You were a pioneer and innovator during the heyday of movies on video as the founding president of Famous Players Media and later the president of Cineplex Media. Please give us a flavor for that time period in the entertainment industry. Well, home video was really new. I mean, everybody is the early 80s, and we had a magazine called Videomania, a trade magazine called Premiere, and um, I left the video industry to be a partner with fam- with Viacom and Famous Players Media. With the, in the video industry, they gave you everything you wanted. It was like the cash cow of the film. So all the marketing had been done, all the interviews had been done, and so you go on these junkets to interview people, but you had to sign that you would bank the interview for six months, 
right? When So when home video comes out, you take the same poster and they stick a sticker on it and said, now on video, and you put it on video stores. So there wasn't much more marketing to do. There wasn't much more. But you had access to everyone. And not, but on, not only the new stars, but all the old legends, because all their video collections were coming out. Like, and then a new life, like who's Betty Davis or, you know, Gregory Peck. Uh, I got to meet Gregory Peck oh, because To Kill a Mockingbird's 25th anniversary was coming out on video. And um, so it, it was total access and all these junkets. And it was a total freedom that, like a candy store back then. And it wasn't like 50 publicists and you have three minutes with this person. And you can only ask about this question. And it was like, you yeah, know, so... Well, you say everything was already done, but you came up with and published Cineplex Magazine. Now, this was a free magazine, but why was it an important sales and marketing tool? We had done it before us with famous magazines, with famous players, and it was like a calling card. We had done it done in English and French with famous. And Cineplex, you're sitting there in the theaters, one that tells you all the movies that, that are coming out. Our mantra always was light, tight, and bright because people aren't sitting there to, you know, hear about everything that's in someone's life. They want to hear about the movie. And we didn't criticize any films. We told you, you need to see this film for the great performance. Whole video made film more accessible to everybody. It made it like you can watch a Western privately if if that's what you really wanted to do. And so... It wasn't critical of films. It wasn't critical of what people wore. It wasn't critical of who you slept with. It, it was just telling you little tidbits that you can read before a film. And it became the number one red magazine in Canada. Amazing. Yeah. And you did have a version for kids. There was a very popular promotion with Disney where the kids would enjoy the Halloween mask right from the magazine. Yeah, we did uh, Mickey Mouse uh, mask. You've done your homework. Wow. Well, thank you for that. I, I do. And I, I'm going to ask you about the next big business initiative I want to talk to you about, which is you negotiated theater naming rights for the huge Scotiabank movie theater complex in downtown Toronto's entertainment district at the corner of Richmond and John. Now, this was decades ahead of the Leafs and Raptors home being known as Scotiabank Arena. And correct me if I'm mistaken, was done at a time when buildings were named after people and not sponsored by corporations. Well, um, well you know, uh, Scotia had never not done any naming rights before, and I met with Rick White, who was their marketing, and Rick deserves all the credit. And, you know, it was one of these courtesy meetings where I'm going to dismiss you for having a coffee or whatever, and we talked about naming rights, and he had said that you couldn't actually just put a name on a theater without some kind of a loyalty program to bring people in, and... Our whole pitch about cinema is that it's a young demographic that's going to have a brand for life. So if you're happy with your bank, you're going to stay with your bank. Not only that, they make it impossible to try and switch. But, you know, same with a grocery store, same with different things. And I took out a card I had from Royal Bank, and it was a British Airways credit card. And the first people who gave me a credit card, other than my dad's Amex supplementary card, and uh, it was... RBC British Airways card. And I said, they gave me this card at 17. I'm still a customer, right? And so that led to that whole, the naming of theaters across the country and uh, a media advertising program. And we did it as an exclusive uh, with them in the scene program, which is not huge. Well, and that uh, talk about that because that led directly to you co-founding the scene loyalty card program 
again, something well ahead of its time. What was your vision with the SCENE program? You know, there was several loyalty programs that we had, and I had assistance in different people, but never knew how to use them or or um, the time it took to get a, on other loyalty programs. The one we talked about was instant gratification. I think the Shoppers Drug Mart program, Optimum at the time, was something that I did know how to use. And it, it was developed by the executive at Cineplex and Scotiabank once the idea, but the idea was instant gratification, that you can get a movie quickly and go from there. Yeah, that, of course, the old joke is even instant gratification is too slow for some people now. <laughs> I'm not touching that lie. <laughs> One chapter I did not see in your book, and I want to ask you about, because of all your work with Cineplex and, and famous players, did you ever have any interactions with the very controversial Garth Drabinsky? I did. And do you want to comment good or bad? And, and did you ever think of having a chapter on him in your book? You know, um, um, no. I didn't think of having a chapter or in the book. But when we brought Diane Carroll for the, to perform for the 519 and the Four Seasons, which she sold out in three days, and, like, and she asked that Garth be invited. And... Um, she had said at the time, I don't know how you feel about Garth, but he put a black woman in Sunset Boulevard, which had never been done. And I would like you to invite him, and I would like you to sit him in the front row. And before I said anything, and she said, you know he's done that for you many times. And like Diane Carroll tells you that, you just shut up, of course. But I had a long relationship with Garth. I worked with him in the video industry from Pan-Canadian Films, and I have not had a bad experience with Garth, to be honest. So to be fair, I know other people's experiences. I know friends' experiences. But personally, I worked with a guy who worked with him way back named Doug Brooker, and uh, it was always pleasant experiences. Thanks to listener Matthew Chatelois for suggesting Salah Bashir to be a guest on this podcast. Great idea, Matthew. Thank you very much for your contribution. If you have a future guest idea for the Toronto Legends podcast, I'd love to hear from you at torontolegends.ca or find me, Andrew Applebaum, on LinkedIn. Okay, back to Salah Bashir. Now, beyond the silver screen, your entrepreneurial spirit led to the establishment of Famous Characters, famous being spelt P-H. This venture is a media production, publishing, and sponsorship entity. Are you still actively involved with Famous Characters? Yeah, it's... Uh, as much as I can, I am. Yeah, and that that was our company from the beginning, Famous Characters, so Famous Players Media and my role with Cineplex and other stuff all went through Famous Characters. And yeah, it, it it's my art company. My uh, um, I'm still involved as much as I can. It's easier now after COVID because the office is in the house next door, so it's like that. <laughs> you can't beat the commute. Can't beat the commute now. I get That's to go back on the Garth question, though. A, a thing is that there could have been other, lots of other chapters, and we arbitrarily cut it off. I worked with Jamie Bernard, who I'd known for forty years, and we had been on many of the same stuff. And then she brought a lot of stuff out that she had been, you know, that we had been same experiences. And so the Edward Albee chapter is like, "Hey, wait, didn't you guys have an affair? How come this is not in here?" And so we tried to do it as as nicely as possible. And there was there could have been a lot of more on, I mean, the Eartha chapters, Eartha Kitt and Aretha Franklin are, are shorter, and the 
Ella could have had a whole book on her own, but we did cut off. We wanted to do it with mostly pleasant experiences, pleasant, empowering, helping experiences. It's not to say there wasn't a ton of people that were not, and we didn't decided not to go negative on anything like that. Well, it was interesting. Most authors have a, their biggest problem is starting the book. Your biggest problem was stopping the book. You did have more content that you could handle. We did, and there was more that we, we could have gone on. And uh, um, yeah, and we, it, you know, again, the light, tight, and bright. I had been in the hospital for five months in rehab, and you can start the book anywhere. You can you can read the Harvey Milk chapter and go back. You can read any chapter you want. It was one of those things that if you're sitting in a doctor's office or you're sitting somewhere and you don't really want to go through, like here I was born in the, in this year and I came here and did this to today. So it you know everyone asks what's the order? Why is this order? It's like make it whatever you want. It's a little think, different that way. I think it's a great marketing slogan. You can read it in the waiting room. Yeah. <laughs> No, Sala, your book is apparently the first with your pronouns displayed on the front cover. Were you shocked that nobody had done this before? Yeah, I was very much so. And I still get, you know, mail and solicitations, even from people that we give money to saying Ms. Sala Bashir or Sarah Bashir. Um, And so let's, yeah. So you also had practical reasons for doing it. I did have, yeah, and then, you know, with all the jewelry and everything on there, is it like, and and we only expect people in the trans community to do it. We only expect certain people to do it, and I think if we more identify who we are and, you know, um, I think it would help with a lot of prosecution, a, a lot of hate, and uh, I just wanted up front and, uh, you know, happy to have done it. Now, the forewords to your book were written by Alan Cumming and Adam Agoyan. Why those two artists in particular, and, and how did you get them involved? I actually floored that they did it and floored what they wrote. I asked. Um, I was told to ask a bunch of people, and um, those names began with A, so those were to ask. <laughs> but I think uh, I love both of them. I mean, Adam and I go way back, and I'm a big fan of Alan's, and uh, so they did it. It's a good rule of life. Just ask. Yeah, it is. Almost people can say no or why or... Um... Uh, Sal, I want to ask you about two of your mottos. Motto number one, the only autograph worth having is on a check. Yeah. <laughs> That's the business side of you. Well, no, it's also fundraising side of me, right? It, it goes back a, a lot of stuff. And I, I, I think what, you know, if I was to be friends with I don't know Beyonce and like do I just want a picture of her with an autograph on her but if if she could do an event for me you know and I get a lot of autographs on checks for that but I I think it's also about or a piece of art having you know a signed piece of art it's just about not fawning over someone not interrupting their lunch or dinner to just say can I get your autograph it's like you know somebody's gonna throw that out after you die anyway like somebody's gonna go through all oh, here's all my mother's stuff and look oh she has a autograph of Rudy Giuliani here. <laughs> Fireplace. Um but yeah, it it I've never wanted to you know, line up and say, Hey, can I have your autograph? I've lined up 
to ask people for checks. So, Hey, checks have more power for sure. Yeah. Here's motto number two I want to ask you about. You famously do not know how to tie a necktie, but who cares? Because a necktie doesn't complete an outfit the way that pearls do. You definitely know how to accessorize. And this brings me to your second motto that I want to ask about. Jewelry makes the man. Yeah. I think Pearl walking into somewhere, um, it's a coincidence. It's it's walking in, you know, I mean, now it's embraced more by music uh, people. But if you go historically, with royalty and different parts of the world, from India to the Middle East to, you know, jewelry was always... Uh, and it could be a simple part of jewelry. It could be anything. And, but it, it's a visual, bold statement walking in. It's not just another suit that you don't know someone in. And for me, it was a badge of courage. Having pearls walking into a boardroom was a badge of courage. It's like, you know. And that brings us to urban myth number three. Apparently, Pearls Make the Man was the working title for your book before it came out as First to Leave the Party. There could be a second book. I like it. There's that businessman coming out again. <laughs> Salah, you have said that just being normal is how you connected with celebrities, that they didn't want you to cater to them or to make a fuss. They didn't want to have to dress up and be the show. Would your conclusion be that people, famous or not, all go through the same things in life? Yeah, I mean, I think we've all been at events and different things where we're all dressed up and, you know, people just want to take their shoes off and go somewhere and just have a drink and not having to, you know, either party or be somebody or be talked about anything or just relax and be themselves. And I didn't see anybody, I mean, going looking at it now, going back, and we include some of the letters and the messages at, at the end because I myself thought no one's going to believe that I, you know, I'm in Ella Fitzgerald's house and she's cooking for me or anything like that. So it's like, but... One of the publisher, when Doug Pepper, his wife, uh, Susan Burns, who's also with a publisher with Knopf, saw the, some of the letters and pictures, and she said, oh, we have to include these for signatures and stuff like that. And I threw a lot of that stuff out, and a woman in my office who I worked with for 35 years, Kathy Prouse, would keep them and uh, file them. And uh, I think just being ordinary and not being interrupted and not being asked what you've done or what you're doing next or any of those things, or how we all live our lives. We just want to be ourselves. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. Some people. As we close up, Salah, I do want to ask, what are you working on next? Actually, started a second book. I'm working on a couple, camp a couple of capital campaigns, one with the Woodland Cultural Center down here at the Six Nations, trying to build a um, a museum and gallery that tells their own story instead of being told through other people's eyes. And St. Joe's Health Center in Toronto has got a billion-dollar gift from the government, and they're building on a new tower, uh, dabbling in a bunch of stuff, and like always, and uh, can still consulting on a couple of things. And Are you big on social media? And if so, uh, where can we follow you? I'm not that big. I don't have like a very tight dress I can pose in every day. Um, but I, it, I am on Facebook as Salah Bashir and on uh, Instagram as Pasha Bashir and um, Pasha underscore Bashir and on LinkedIn where we met. Excellent. That is where we met. Again, Salah's new book is First to Leave the Party, My Life with Ordinary People Who Happen to be Famous. 
and you can get it anywhere you like to get your books or go to salabashir.com for more information. I want to thank you for your time. It was great to meet you. Great to hear the stories, behind the stories, and uh, I'll wish you well going forward and on this second book. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me to meet you as well. And my pleasure to have you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. And to the listeners, on behalf of Salah Bashir, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.